You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The U.S. House has officially passed a continuing resolution to keep the federal government operating, but the bill also contains hundreds of millions of dollars for dealing with our Red Hill water crisis, which includes money for defueling the bulk fuel storage facility. We talked to Representative Ed Case yesterday afternoon following that House vote and the rare inclusion of emergency funds to address our Red Hill emergency. It is a total of $403 million. The $100 million is uh, specific to implementing the state's emergency order to defuel. The $250 million is for basically the current uh, um, efforts to clean up uh, Red Hill and get people back in their homes. And then the $53 million is, is, is really part of the, of the Navy's current efforts, but it, it just comes from a different bucket. So bottom line is um, the, the bill itself is coming out of the House. It passed today. Uh, the total is $403 million and, and um, you know, of which $100 million is specific to defueling. So while you can earmark the money, if the military is foot-dragging on defueling, what do we do? It, well, I th- well, first of all, uh, the military is, is not foot-dragging at the moment, as far as I can tell. But second, um, the military is under uh, direct legal orders from the National Defense Authorization Act that we uh, passed in November to identify uh, alternatives to Red Hill, including alternatives outside of Hawaii. So they're they're under legal um, direction to do so, and I don't think they're going to ignore that. I think also, um, obviously, we all, we have a number of remedies in Congress that we can pursue if if they do in fact foot drag. We just got an email from David Hinken from Earth Justice. And they are asking the Department of Health to reject the submittals that the Navy just sent over. They've identified a contractor, which uh, Earth Justice says has not gotten the okay from DOH to be awarded the contract, and that there are just some deficiencies in what they submitted. So they believe that the military is slow walking you know, the efforts to comply with the order. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm going to defer to the Department of Health on whether they think that's correct or not. And Earth Justice is is fully entitled to make that uh, make that um, argument, and and I and I, I take it very very seriously. But I I'm not that, down at that level of detail to determine whether there's merit to to that statement or whether the Department of Health um, has or hasn't uh, reviewed it or 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 approved it. So, you know, that's that's a matter for the Department of Health and the Environmental Protection Agency, of course. Um, they are in charge of implementing the governor's order. The, the congressional delegation is is in full lockstep with the governor on that order. As you know, we've we've uh, taken a very strong position on the Navy appealing that order. Um, and um, our focus right now is on uh, stabilizing the current situation, getting people back into their home, returning the water to safe drinking uh, status, and implementing that order. And so, you know, those are the those are the issues and the steps that I'm focused on right now. And you know, I believe we're expecting something from the health department, uh, either an up or down on the the data that the military provided last week, on the you know the flushing and the sampling that they're doing in those neighborhoods. I know the delegation uh, early on had wanted the governor to ask President Biden to declare uh, an emergency over this water situation. And I think if Senator Schatz has come out again, uh, but I don't know, where do, you, where do you stand on that? Well, we appropriated $403 million today, immediate appropriation. So, you know, we're moving in the same direction as what an emergency declaration would involve. Um, it, is, it is a crisis. It is an emergency. Congress is treating it that way. The Department of Health is. Uh, the, the Environmental Protection Agency is. So from my perspective, if there is a real need for the president to declare a national emergency, which would, which would effectively trigger the same things that we're already doing, then I would be on board with that, of course. But, you know, events are moving very, very fast on Red Hill. And what may have been necessary or advised a couple of weeks ago. We either don't need any more or we've, we've, you know, we've gone in a different direction. But at this point, you're solidly behind the move to defuel those tanks. We're in full, full support of the state direction and in full support of the state's um, legal right to do so and in full support of the state's administration of the order. Uh, and that, that's, that's who I'm listening to right now for the facts and the opinion as to whether the Navy is, in fact, 
and the overall military is in fact complying with its obligations um, under the under the emergency order as well as its obligations uh, on a broader level. And to be clear, so do you support retiring this facility or would you entertain them using it at a later date if whatever repairs or maintenance needs to be done is completed? Well, it's it's very difficult for me to conceive of any set of conditions under which the, the use of Red Hill as a as a major fuel uh, reserve would, would continue. The the military itself, um, obviously that's part of the process that we're going through now, um, and I want that process to work because I want uh, everything to be vetted and sifted and analyzed and, and uh, stated. Uh, but also the, the military itself is in the, in the uh, depths of a, of a long overdue study as to whether they need to deploy fuel at that amount um, at, in, in Hawaii or at any amount for that matter, or whether they're better off from a reserve perspective uh, deploying it in other ways. And that study is coming back in a couple of, a couple of months. Um, and so, you know, I really want to let all of that, those processes unfold because I think it's going to produce a very solid set of, you know, options. And I personally believe that those options are not going to include continuing Red Hill. I think the House passage uh, today of the $403 million is is really a testament uh, to to the urgency that uh, my colleagues in Congress attach to to the crisis that we're facing. I mean, it is very unusual uh, for the bill that we passed uh, to to have additional funding added, you know, provided uh, for anything. In fact, this additional funding was the only funding um, addition in this particular resolution, which was which was basically only to continue federal funding at its current level for a couple of uh, weeks until we hopefully get our um, FY22 appropriations bill done. So um, I think one thing that um, is not uh, fully appreciated is how um, unusual this this, uh, appropriation is and and what that actually means from the perspective of Congress's uh, focus on Red Hill. I had colleagues uh, that got up and spoke uh, beside me on the floor today, uh, including the chair of the of the Defense Appropriations uh, Subcommittee, so Betty McCollum, who is, um, you know, in charge of the entire defense budget, and she gets it. Senator Schatz uh, deserves the credit for initiating this. He he negotiated it with the um, with the uh, the administration and with his fellow senators, and and uh, pair, you know paired up with me, and and it was my responsibility to to handle the House side. And so um, this is this is really a very positive uh, development. I think um, it specifies that um, as we discussed already, 100 million dollars of the 403 million is specific uh, to the defueling order by the state, and it therefore also recognizes the validity of the state's uh, defueling order. And so, I think this is this is a solid development. Uh, we've got, you know, a lot more to do. There's there's a lot more money being spent. There's a there's a tremendous amount of oversight. Um, at the same time, today, while while this was on the floor, my um, House Appropriations Committee subcommittee on military construction. Um, held a informational briefing uh, that I participated in, and we addressed um, the, the crisis and the solutions from a, from a facilities perspective, from military construction perspective. So there's a lot of activity going on in Congress right now in Red Hill. That was Representative Ed Case, who we talked to yesterday afternoon about the money that the House has appropriated to help us deal with the Red Hill water crisis. Case expects the Senate to take up the bill in the next few days, and with its passage, it will head to the president for his signature. As we just heard, Earth Justice and the Sierra Club are calling on the State Health Department to reject the military's work plan report that was filed last week. We talked to Earth Justice Attorney David Henkin yesterday about his concerns. The emergency order requires department approval, Department of Health approval of any contractors who are going to be doing this assessment. Our understanding is that the Navy didn't bother to get departmental approval of, of the folks that they hired to do these assessments. So that's number one. Uh, they, they should not have been going ahead with people who are not approved. And then number two, the Navy's clear focus is on trying to prove that this facility is safe enough to continue operating rather than what the emergency order focuses on, which is how can we quickly and safely defuel the facility? I mean, we can, we can debate as long as the Navy likes 
whether it should ever be allowed to use this facility in some form in the future after the threat to our water supply is removed. But the Navy is, is slow walking its assessment of what needs to be done for defueling and prioritizing uh, its efforts to basically redo a risk assessment that, that's, that it's already done that, uh, that proves the Navy is, uh, that the facility is not safe. And, and again, you don't even need a risk assessment. All you need to know is that through a combination of operator error and somewhat mysterious design and who knows what, uh, 14,000 gallons of contaminated water and fuel were able to deprive almost 10% of this island's population of, of safe drinking water in their homes. And that's a condition that persists to this day. Uh, and we should just we should not be standing for that. And the department shouldn't stand for that. These work plans are not focusing as their primary priority, getting the fuel out of the Red Hill tanks as quickly as possible. Instead, if you look at the implementation schedule, if you look at the just number of pages devoted to different tasks, this is all about the Navy trying to explain uh, why the facility is, is safe and can be made safe and, and operational without ever defueling. And, and that, you know, that's why we had a, an administrative hearing. That's why we had hours and hours of testimony and hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. That's done uh, for purposes of compliance with the emergency order. Now, of course, the Navy's appealing that in court. They're free to do that. But those appeals do not change the fact that the emergency order is in full force and effect. And we're calling on the department to disapprove the submittals, because if they don't disapprove the submittals, the Navy's later going to say our, our course of action was acceptable to the department. And it absolutely should not be. It focuses on the wrong questions. It makes unsupported assumptions. And most importantly, it does not prioritize the prompt defueling, which is the only way that we're going to feel safe uh, that our water supply will not be contaminated. And uh, members of our congressional de delegation are working to try and get money appropriated to deal with this, to do the defueling, and to, to make right with those families that are deprived of drinking water. Absolutely. And, and we, we applaud the congressional delegation for doing that. Uh, it is extraordinary. You know, the, the, the legislation that's being passed is, is just a continuing appropriation. It's for the, for the rest of the country, uh, they're just trying to keep money in the pipeline for business as usual, and that our delegation was able to get a specific additional appropriation to deal with this crisis, um, you know, I, I think is, is to their credit and also I think reflects the will of Congress that the Navy deal with this situation and, and deal with the situation by defueling, not fighting in court. Again, we don't want the Navy to be able to rhetorically say that the department was on board with, with their approach. And again, their approach ignores the urgency of getting fuel out of these tanks and, and instead tries to redo a risk assessment that was already done. Back in, in 2018, the Navy did a risk assessment and its contractor then concluded that the risk of a spill of up to 30,000 gallons in any given year is, you know, 27 percent. The risk in five years is 81 percent. The risk in, in 10 years is over 96 percent. The risk in 20 years is basically 100 percent. These are analyses that have already been done. And, you know, the Navy shouldn't be wasting everyone's time redoing its defense of this facility that has already poisoned our aquifer. It's time to get fuel out of the tanks. It's time to protect our aquifer. And again, they can do their analyses and make their arguments later when we're all safe, not now. You know, we, we, we want the department to reject this and, and, and very clearly tell the Navy, you need to focus on defueling. That's, that's your job number one. What do you make of the EPA's decision to inspect the facility? We welcome the EPA's. Uh, I would like to see the EPA more active on this issue. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's consistent with this administration's positions on, on protecting the environment for them not to take a more active role. And, and frankly, at the end of the day, you know, the, if, if some foreign power or, 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 or homegrown terrorist group had poisoned our water supply, we would expect our Navy to come quickly and swiftly to our defense. But they're the ones who are threatening us. And, you know, they're supposed to be protecting us. And that's just turned – it's got everything turned upside down. The Biden administration needs to step up and tell the Navy it's time to protect the people of Oahu. Did you meet with the EPA deputy administrator when she came here last week? 
at Janet McCabe? I did not meet with uh, Janet McCabe. I met with the Region 9, the new Region 9 administrator, oh. Martha Guzman. Um, oh, you did she meet was, with her? She was planning to be here in person um, due, to, due to some health issues. Uh, we ended up doing it remotely over Zoom, and, and you can believe that she heard a, an earful from not only Earth Justice, but all of the various other uh, community groups that were on that. At the time that I spoke to her, I think she had been on the job for a couple of few weeks, and, and she made it clear that Red Hill was occupying the vast majority of her time. I can't imagine a scenario under, in, the, in the states under her purview that is more urgent than, than making sure that an island of nearly a million people has safe drinking water. And, and again, that, that should be the Navy's concern as well. Uh, no, one's, no one's talking about depriving the Navy of fuel. We're just saying you can't keep it here because it's putting us all at risk. That was Earth Justice Attorney David Hankin calling on the State Health Department to reject the submittals the Navy sent in as part of its response to the governor's order to defuel Red Hill. A Department of Health spokeswoman said it appreciates the Sierra Club's input and is reviewing the Navy's submittal and will continue to hold the military accountable to the emergency order. Support for HPR comes from Food Start by Chef Jeremy in Honolulu, offering prepared foods to go on Saturdays using fresh ingredients from their Waimanalo farm. Email address foodstartservice at gmail.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll catch up with the new executive director of the True Initiative or Technology Readiness User Evaluation. We'll find out how Chu is also working with Climb High to develop the next generation information technology workforce. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. continue the conversation about Red Hill on today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Christina Jedra on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah, so you have a story with the revelation that security cameras at Red Hill were inoperable for about a year. That's amazing. That's right. So uh, Congressman Kaikahele held like a Facebook Live event last night, and he told viewers that um, when he visited Red Hill after uh, or amid this water contamination crisis, he asked about security cameras, and he asked to see the footage specifically of the two leaks last year that are suspected of causing the water contamination. And Navy officials told him that the cameras weren't working, that they couldn't show him any footage. And so he asked again through an official request, um, and the Navy answered in an official response that in January 2021, so about a year ago, a contractor severed a cable that provided power to the majority of the closed-circuit cameras in the Red Hill facility, and that includes those that would have recorded the leaks in May and November of last year. So we don't have any footage of the incidents that supposedly caused this contamination. Wow. And that could really help shed some light as to what caused this. So what was Kaheli's reaction when he heard that? He seemed pretty flabbergasted, um, disappointed to say the least. He also said he finds it almost unbelievable, perhaps literally, but um, he said, you know, that's the answer the Navy gave. So he said, kind of have to take them at their word. Um, the Navy did say there is footage from a mobile device, perhaps someone's phone, I guess, um, that was taken after the November leak started, but that was turned over to military investigators. So that may be the only footage that exists. 
Um, but it, he, I mean, he's definitely really concerned. And as you said, it leaves unanswered a lot of questions. Um, you know, we still, there's a lot we don't know about how these leaks happened. Um, you know, he's wondering how long did it take to secure the fuel that leaked? Where exactly did the fuel go? How much was coming out? He said you all, you know, you would have been able to see a lot of that in the camera. Um, and it's a shame that, that we won't be able to see it. Yeah, and they have, what, more than 90 cameras? 92 cameras throughout the facility, according to Kaheli, yeah. And and the, the key ones just, uh, yeah, weren't available to us. Right, yeah. And I, I should say that the Navy supposedly told the congressman the, the line was cut inadvertently. But, um, you know, it, it is sort of alarming that they were not fixed um, right away. Uh, according to the Navy's response to the congressman, a local contractor just started working on fixing this in January of this year. So it's, you know, a year for the majority of the closed-circuit cameras to be out of commission at a facility that is, according to the Navy, of great national security importance. Um, There's a huge amount of fuel, like 180 million gallons at any given time in this facility. Um, It's supposed to be, you know, secure. Um, It it does raise questions about safety risk um, for there not to be any surveillance cameras um, and I have reached out to the Navy for an explanation for all of this, but I have not heard back yet. Yeah, I mean, gosh, we hear so much about national security, you know, and when we go on tours there, they say, oh, you can't take a picture of this, you can't take a picture of that. Right. Uh, and yet key surveillance cameras, wow, to be out uh, to be out of commission for so long, that is crazy. Right, right. And on November 20th, if you recall, the, the Navy said that a cart crashed into a pipeline basically spewing fuel and water all over the lower access tunnel. And that's supposedly, according to the Navy, how the fuel ended up in the Red Hill well, because that site was really close to the drinking water source. And I think, you know, a lot of us would like to see how exactly the cart crashed and, you know, moment to moment what happened. Um, And it just looks like we're not going to have that opportunity um, I do also want to mention the Navy's investigation into the cause of the contamination um, was submitted to the Pentagon, but it has not been made public yet. Um, Kahili was saying he's awaiting its release. He's calling for the full report to be released, unredacted, um, but, you know, we're kind of just waiting for that to come out. Yeah, because I imagine, you know, if it includes information like this, you know, that uh, could be very damaging um, to the Navy, just about its its readiness. And, you know, uh, but it just sounds like this facility wasn't buttoned down <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, uh, not in tip-top shape. It does seem that way. Um, you know, the Navy's still fighting to keep it open, though. They've taken the state to court, in federal court and state court, to resist the state order to defuel the tanks. Um, those cases are ongoing, but, uh, you know, the lack of cameras certainly, I think a lot of people feel that doesn't inspire confidence, to say the least, uh, about how they've been operating this World War II era facility. Yeah, lots of developments this week on Red Hill. But thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read her stories on this issue. Just go to civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio, and it's Backyard Quiz Time. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka'i, olana'i, omau, okaho'olabe, ohava'i. Today on our Backyard Quiz, we are taking a trip back to Oahu circa 1890 to check out some prime real estate. In the heart of Waikiki, you'll find a grand country estate known as Ainahau, or the land of the Hau Tree. Uh, this 10-acre estate was a gift to Princess Kaiulani from her godmother, Princess Ruth Keilikolani. Uh, Princess Kaiulani's Scottish father, Archibald Cleghorn, built a two-story home on the Waikiki land. 
At first, it was used only as a, uh, re- an estate, but the family loved it so much it soon became their full-time residence. The family furnished the home with the finest brocade chairs, gold and glass cabinets, and even two grand pianos. But the real jewels were in the garden, where Cleghorn planted flowers and trees from all over the world. In fact, I know how it was the first place that you could find one particular tree that now dots the streets of Hawaii. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what type of tree found among the Ainahau Estate's imported plants and flowers was the first of its kind in Hawaii. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one get to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. <laughs> Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NairitHawaii.com. Plans have been officially axed for a proposed luxury eco-resort fronting a popular Hilo surf spot on Hawaii Island. Concerns over this shoreline development is prompting intervention by residents of the small coastal community of Keaukaha. Uh, HPR's Ku'uvehiri, she has more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, As you mentioned just last week, uh, the California-based landowner and individual named Rose Chung uh, of this shoreline parcel there in Kelkaha officially rescinded her her permit application for uh, what was described in the the application as a 36-unit luxury eco-resort fronting uh, the popular local beach spot known as Chalk. And uh, this, of course, uh, came about Sort of unconventionally, the permit application, which was filed with the county planning department back in 2020, uh, actually was rejected. Uh, but the community had not heard of the application at the time and only recently came across the information. Uh, so I should say the, the original uh, project was uh, rejected by the planning department uh, about a month later for a host of reasons, including uh, wastewater management. This is a shoreline development, and so being so close to uh, the ocean would require a little bit more in terms of infrastructure upgrades. Uh, and there were also questions about community outreach, whether or not the community had been brought in on this. Uh, but the issue, as I mentioned, came to a head last month uh, when members of the Kelka community came across plans for the project online. Uh, Kelkaha resident Helena Kapuni-Reynolds, who's sort of been facilitating these conversations and discussions with the community, uh, explained how it came about. It was called the Hilo Eco Resort Project on their webpage, and it was a single paragraph that stated that there was a community engagement process and that they got proper approval from the city to do the project. So somehow, somewhere, somebody found this post and it went viral on social media because folks wanted to know what's going on, when did this consultation happen, when were these approvals made, because it wasn't quite clear and we never heard about it. So how large is this parcel? Right, so it's about an acre, 1.4 acres, right there along the shoreline, fronting chalks. It's a little bit past the Hawaiian homestead community of Keokaha, over on the beach side. And so not a big parcel. Uh, from as, uh, from what we know, the the landowner had taken hold of the property and bought the property in 2019, actually, for, for about uh, $900,000. It's valued or assessed right now at $1.2 million. So very, you know, a, a property that anyone would want to would want to buy up, uh, but her initial plans were for an eco-resort, which uh, she has since said, you know, I'm going to stop and talk to the community, see what uh, we can make of this area. 
uh, for Kapuni Reynolds and folks I've spoken to from the community, you know, it, it, it's become this opportunity because everyone's engaged, heavily engaged in uh, the outcome of what happens to that area. Uh, they're having conversations about zoning, for example. Uh, the area is zoned uh, open and resort, so resort development. You know, there's precedent for that under the Hawaii Econ General Plan. Uh, but a, a bit of digging done by the community uh, showed uh, a 1975 Hilo Community Development Plan uh, where concerns were raised about having this area zoned resort and perhaps for, uh, should be changed to single and multifamily residential. So that's a conversation that is going on right now. Well, yeah, and the issue about wastewater, you know, because uh, I don't know what the systems are down there. They're on cesspool, septic tanks, you know, county, you know, sewage. That, yes, so that it, the county sewage is nearby, but this particular property does, does not have the infrastructure for that. So any development would require those upgrades and, and construction uh, subterranean construction, so that was part of sort of the the uh, feedback that the project initial project had received from the planning department, and there was no follow up after after that to that particular project. Uh, newly hired consultants uh, for the landowner have said that uh, resort is not uh, you know is not something that we want to pursue at this time but that a future project uh, will definitely need to include uh, feedback from the community. Well, do we know if the owner can't build the 36-unit uh, resort? Uh, I don't know. Will she try and sell it? That's, that's a good question. Uh, the, so the act, that initial project is officially axed. There's, there's no uh, you know, um, motivation to bring that particular plan back, uh, but... Uh, the community is looking into perhaps finding open um, space funds, punk funds here with the county or Trust for Public Land funds to maybe buy the property should the landowner want to sell. These are all options on the table for this for the community at the time. Yeah, very, very interesting. All right. Well, we'll I'm sure you'll, you'll be tracking this <laughs> from we follow-up. Will. We will be updating you soon. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Kuvehi. All right. Oh. We have been talking with HBR reporter Kuhuvehi Reishi. To read her stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio, and we have got a chittering chorus of shorebirds thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Sanderling. Hunakai, also known as Sanderlings, are common winter visitors to the Hawaiian Islands. At just about eight inches long from their tail to the tip of their bill, they're among the smallest of our many visiting shorebirds. Like other shorebirds, they molt into different plumage colors twice a year. In their winter, or non-breeding plumage, which is the one we typically see, they have mostly bright white heads and bellies, jet black bills, and grayish plumage on their backs. Then, during the breeding season, the plumage of both sexes changes to a more reddish brown on their heads and backs. In Hawaii, hunakai can often be found on sandy shores running back and forth between receding waves searching for crabs and worms that live in the wet sand between the tides. They can sometimes also be found in rocky tide pool areas and around mud flats in mixed flocks with other shorebird species. You can listen for a twittering series of soft, squeaky wick-wick calls. The Hawaiian name for sanderlings, or hunakai, means sea foam, which is appropriate as they spend a lot of time searching for food near the breaking waves on the shoreline. 
the white flowered morning glory you can find along some beaches at the high tide mark also has the name Hunakai. Hunakai nest and breed in the high arctic tundra during summer where they construct nests on the ground and lay camouflage colored eggs to help protect them from predators. Similar to many shorebirds, the chicks are precocial and so don't depend on parents much after hatching. Hunakai can be seen during the winter months in almost all temperate and tropical beaches around the world. Our birds arrive by late July or early August after making the long non-stop flight across the Pacific that can take them three days or more. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. we turn to our backyard quiz answer. In the first half of the show, we asked you about a certain tree species found on the uh, Ainahau Estate in Waikiki, which belonged to Princess Kaiulani. Her father, Archibald Cleghorn, had an avid interest in horticulture. He imported plants and flowers from all over the world and raised them at the family's estate. Among the collection were mango trees, teak, cinnamon, camphor trees, date palms, sago palms, and many varieties of hibiscus flowers. Cleghorn's beautiful gardens and several streams and lily ponds made Ainaha one of the more beautiful estates in Hawaii. Towering above them all was Hawaii's first banyan tree, the answer to today's backyard quiz. Ainaha was redeveloped in 1955, but cuttings from this tree were planted at the corner of King Street and Keamoku Street, and that tree stood at that location until 1967. More cuttings were taken and planted at Magic Island at Ala Moana Park, where a descendant of Hawaii's original banyan tree still stands today. Now that's today's quiz, and we had no winners. If you have an idea for a quiz, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, in recent weeks, we've been hearing a lot about the history of Kalaupapa, the settlement where thousands of those with Hansen's disease or leprosy were sent decades ago. Separated from loved ones, exiled to a settlement, the patient count has dwindled to a total of nine. They were just five residing on Molokai. The other four are said to be on Oahu. There will be a time when there are no longer any living patients, which presents the question of what will happen to Kalopapa when we can say then there were none. Well, the National Park Service recently released a general plan that begins addressing just that. A new park superintendent just arrived four and a half months ago. Nancy Holman left a post in Colorado to take this job. She shared that she's getting used to the hour-long hike down into the settlement to begin the work week. She is struck by the parallels during this pandemic, dealing with the contagious disease and the isolation that comes with it. She tells us the general plan for the settlement is just the beginning of a conversation about its future, which includes limiting visitors. We're still very much in, you know, COVID protocols and mitigation here. And a lot of those same factors are in place and are really impacting the way people live and work in this space. You know, that idea of sort of fear of the unknown, you know, how a disease is spread, the impacts of disease on society, how information moves around, right? I think about that of the rumor mill, things that we just don't know yet and how that impacts, you know, what's happening. It's certainly enhanced the sense of isolation for the patients and the staff that work here. We still are in a situation where we're only allowing essential people on site. Our staff just returned to work on site in September this year after being away for almost a year. no visitors, so family members, like spouses can't be on site with their partners. I think there's a lot of, you know, that sense of thinking about that general management plan process 
you know, and that kind of how I think people were left in the end of that 10-year process, a very long process, you know, sort of questioning, right? There's still this level of distrust, you know, sort of big scale in society and small scale here, you know, like, will the government, you know, take care of our interests in this site, right? So I think there's no good answer to any of that other than the impacts are here. And I think it has a real opportunity for all of us to really think through the significance of this site for the patients that spent their lives here and are still here with us, but also for the people that will take care of the site into the future too, you know, what sort of level of understanding and who are those individuals that will, you know, make that sacrifice of isolation to be here, take care of a place they care very, very much about that has touched their families over the years. So those are kind of my first impressions, you know, thinking through like what's happening at the park right now. It's, I think we're really taking a page from those patients around resilience. You know, what keeps you going in these times? What do we have to look forward to? What are we optimistic about as we start to return to more of a normal situation? And again, I think we're pretty far from quote unquote normal where we're welcoming visitors back to the site, whether they're just here as friends and family to the patients or the staff or to the general public. And I think what keeps us moving forward is that sense of faith, hope, and joy. We were still assessing those impacts of essentially not doing a lot of work here for a long period of time. I think what I am hopeful for is that the staff are they continue to have an amazing commitment to the mission and to this place that most of our staff are local, uh, meaning they're from this island. And again, it's a pretty significant place to them and their families. In some cases, it's multi-generations that have worked here. And gosh, the uh, pandemic, as you said, has halted all travel you know, from outside in. But what about the barge service? You know, because you folks rely on uh, regular barge service. How has that been affected? The barge service, we did manage to get a barge in at the end of last season. So that was, uh, I think the barge landed, must have been late August. It was pretty late in the season. And it took a lot of effort to, you know, make that happen again with our staff, um, pretty scattered last year, but we did get our barge in. Hopefully, you know, one of the big goals for this year is to just, you know, again, sort of assess where we are and get, you know, more organized and strategic so we're sort of less in the catching up space and more in the forward thinking space. But I think we're on, you know, good track to make sure, you know, getting our barge scheduled this year and, you know, getting what we need. The barge usually arrives sometime in July to August. It really depends on um, scheduling with the company and obviously, you know, ocean and weather conditions. I think it's always a worry um, every year how most of our supplies come in. And, you know, I, I think one of the great pieces of being resilient, right? And um, the fact that, you know, this place has been here and operating for so long is we found ways to, you know, how do we use other forms of transport for smaller items to, you know, be able to get things in, you know. So fortunately, you know, our airline partners help us both with fixed wing and rotor craft deliveries in a pinch. Well, you folks just released a, a general plan for the settlement. What can you share with our listeners about what that involves? Sure. Our general management plan, they're really designed as a as a vision document. It involves a lot of public engagement along the way that includes both internal to the staff and other agency partners as well as the general public. And that plan really addresses a whole range of, you know, future desired conditions is what we would call them. So what do we visualize as a collective group for what this place will look like, you know, in the next, you know, five to 20 years here? And I think what makes this plan particularly interesting as a vision document is, you know, it's predicted in that time frame that those last nine surviving patients may pass on. And so that, 
that future transition when the patients are no longer alive and Department of Health is no longer on site as an active managing partner, you know, what does the space become as far as how it's maintained into the future? What does it look like to uh, host visitors at this site? What do those other uh, partners um, play in and out of that equation? I mean, one of the, you know, the big, I think the big question is the, you know, the various lease agreements that the Park Service holds with um, Department of Lands and Natural Resource and Department of Hawaiian Homeland, I think is of great interest to many. But I think overall, the big questions, right, are, you know, how, how and what <laughs> this place, you know, becomes going forward. And and I think there's a whole range of possibilities in that plan. I think there's a lot of room for future engagement and discovery and partnership with, you know, the people of Hawaii to, to really lay a good foundation for how we do want to implement the future of this place. And so how do we have the conversation about that general plan? Are you folks planning to, you know, work up Zoom meetings, you know, since we're still in COVID? Exactly. I mean, that is one of the conundrums. You know, my understanding is not everybody whose voice would like to be at the table with us are individuals that are interested and or have access to easy uh, technology for things like Zoom meetings, although I've sat in on a few public meetings that I thought went really well and had a good range of voices that other agencies were hosting. So we're trying to really find a blend, you know, how do we um, provide opportunities for everybody regardless of people's ability around technology or even access to technology. Um, we were just discussing this morning around Native Hawaiian organizations and you know, who, who's on our list and who is interested in working with us to share their voices in that direction? Who are other stakeholders? How do we extend that invitation so that people know we're re-engaging <laughs> in the process of planning and we're welcoming people's voices? I would say we are keenly interested in hearing from people on what mechanism might work well for them, both as a way of sharing information coming out from us and other stakeholder groups like Department of Hawaiian Homelands and Department of Transportation, Department of Health and Department of Land and Natural Resources. You know, how do we transfer that information out to the public in a way that um, is helpful to them, but also um, the same coming back towards us, like, you know, how can we let them know that we're looking for information and be able to get that information back. So if people have ideas on that information exchange, it would be great to hear. One of the, the things I've heard quite a bit about, you know, is the curiosity around um, the deep history of this site. You know, this is a, a Native Hawaiian site, and people were, you know, removed from this peninsula to allow for the placement of those with Hansen's disease. And so I think there's a, often a curiosity about, you know, this becoming a site where Native Hawaiians uh, live. And I would say one of the things that I am very optimistic about and hopeful about going forward is that a lot of our staff, as I mentioned, are local. A lot of our staff are Native Hawaiian. And so they're living and working here um, for this place and really have you know, a voice in how this place is managed and taken care of um, into the future. And I and I think not a lot of sites can always say that. And I think that's a really great asset um, that this park has going forward. Is there anything in the time that you've just been there that has just struck you or resonated with you as you get to know Kalapapa better? things. I do think the landscape is very powerful, especially it is it is different from the rest of the island, which is, is really quite striking. I mean, you can see why this site was selected as a place of isolation, which, you know, has a, a power that's both positive and negative. And I think, you know, um, that has been the case over the years. And I think from a personnel perspective or a, a community perspective, 
you know, one of the things I've been told for years about the site was the very um, nature of the vibrancy of the site, how active and engaged the patient population was with everybody who lived here and worked here, as well as visitors on site. So, you know, talking to past visitors as well as staff. And here now, it's very quiet. And, you know, part of that is all those COVID mitigations. Part of it is that there are so few patients left. And I think, you know, for me, the big quandary is going to be, you know, how do we find that way in which people can remember the people that were here and that sense of vibrancy even now, uh, let alone when they're gone in the future, because that was such a such a big part of this place where the people and still are the people, but it's already quiet. Quiet, pandemic quiet at Kalopapa that hopefully will help us guide its future. That was Nancy Holman, the new National Park Superintendent of Kalopapa. The Park Service is in the process of revamping its uh, website for Kalopapa and expects to have the plan, the general plan, and more information about the outreach process uh, included so that more people can engage in the conversation about the future of Kalopapa. Well, that does it for us. Tomorrow, we talk about Washington Place as it prepares to celebrate its 175th anniversary. Got a memory about Washington Place you'd like to share? Record it on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR and email us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 